Hi everyone, my name is Kira B. I'm a recovered compulsive reader and bulimic. Uh, welcome to the Mid-Hudson Intergroup's 2021 Zoom series, Trudge Talk, Conversations Along the Broad Highway. Let's begin with the serenity prayer. God, grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thy will, not mine, be done. Amen. Our topic for April is living in steps 10, 11, and 12, and we are so grateful to have Melissa C. and Harlan G. here today to have this conversation. Thank you both for being here. We're very excited to hear from both of you on this topic, so let's get started. We will start with brief qualifications of both our speakers. Melissa, would you like to begin? talking away. My name is Melissa C. I am a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York and um, thank you so much everybody for being here. It's truly a pleasure um, to talk about this topic and before I begin I'll give you like a little my history with uh, what qualifies me to sit here. Um, I often tell people that um, I'm pretty certain I was born a compulsive overeater or at least with the um, propensity, I was going to be one. I feel like it was a train on the tracks and it, there was nothing that was gonna stop it. You know, my very first words um, I was told were more, right? And um, that's just, I mean, it's, it's what I've grown up hearing about myself that I was a baby um, and I would be yelling from the crib in the middle of the night for more. And it was more bottles. It wasn't more, that was what I wanted. I wanted to be fed more. And I'm the youngest of five siblings. And so my mom's story, my dad's story was that they would wake up in the morning and my siblings um, would feed me all night long so that my mom would come into the room in the morning and there would be bottles upon bottles all on the floor. And, um, and I was wet because <laughs> my siblings basically gave me bottles all night. No one changed me. So, um, you know, and that is really how I always saw life and food. I always hungered and ached for more. And um, so I became a closet eater at a very young age because I grew up in a family. My parents loved me a great deal. And when you have a child who always craves more, who never seems to get their fill of food, um, you have a child that gets overweight pretty quick, you know? And so my weight, my chunkiness, my chubbiness, my was adorable until it wasn't. And then it was problematic. And, um, and so my parents would um, give me a lot of uh, parameters, portion control, a little discipline, a little, you know, and, um, and it didn't work. It didn't work because I'm powerless to this disease and so were they. You know, no matter what they tried, um, I was very skilled at sneaking food. I could, you know, I say like I knew my house um, in the dark. I could make my way from my bedroom to the kitchen in the dark, in the middle of the night at a young age. I could open the refrigerator. I knew how far to open it before the light would come on and allow other people to hear me, right? And, um, and so I was very quiet. I could do exactly what I needed to do. 
Um, and I began to gain weight rapidly as a child. I went on my first diet. I was uh, in fifth grade and um, it was Weight Watchers. And it, my mother lovingly disciplined me, you know, lovingly disciplined. My mother went on the diet, really. She went on the diet for with, you know, she put me on the diet really was what it was. And it worked, you know, I lost weight. I was thin for a period of time. And I believe around the age of 14, it all like heck broke loose for, for me. And I gained um, in high school. I started off my high school. I was thin. I had went on a diet. I lost weight. I was like starving myself. I wanted to get skinny. I got skinny for about a minute, literally a minute. And then I ate. And I couldn't, and within my high school years, I gained a hundred pounds. And so there became like, talk about humiliation and pain. And I, my parents tried everything and I tried everything and it was humiliating. It was painful. Um, it didn't work. Nothing worked. You know, I came to Overeaters Anonymous. I was in my early twenties because I wanted I wanted to get married. I wanted to meet a man. I wanted a good job. I wanted to meet a man and I wanted to get married and have a life, right? And what happened for me, um, I got those things. I was disciplined. I went to Overeaters Anonymous and, um, and I found out about the allergy of the body, which was really good information. Um, and I was also given a big book and I was given a food plan. Back in that day, they would, you know, at the meetings I went to, they gave you the diet. And I loved diets. And so abstinence, I'd say at that point in my life, abstinence was God. And my food plan was my religion. And, and that doesn't work. That's not enough power. That's insufficient power. And so for me, the day came when I ate again. And that was on my honeymoon. And the way that I had, you know, I met my husband, I was thin. And I ate on my honeymoon. And on my honeymoon, it wasn't such a big deal because we were having fun and I didn't want to stop, right? What was crushing was the Monday I came home. I thought for sure I had a diet that worked and I couldn't do it. I had no power to do it. And there, the same way I gained 100 pounds in high school, I gained it in my early marriage. And that was another crushing, humiliating, debilitating Thank you, God, I found Overeaters Anonymous again. And this time I got it different. You know, I found out that yes, abstinence, of course abstinence, we, yes, we need to be abstinence, but that is just the beginning. That is just the beginning. I need a relationship with power. I need a God. I need a relationship with God. I need a restructuring. I needed to understand that I was seriously broken and that I was not going to fit a program. Like this is news alert for anybody. If you think you're gonna fit a program into your life, you've got it all wrong. I had to throw away the life that wasn't working and create a new one. And it was interesting in the beginning of here, it was a quick little conversation about what time people wake up. I'll tell you right now, and I know it's not in the big book, I don't know a single person who has strong recovery who sleeps late. I don't know what it is, but we have a restructuring of our lives. I have a new purpose. And today my purpose, I've been relieved of over 160 pounds. I'm gonna, Kira's gonna show my, would you share the screen real quick, Kira? Just wanna show you if you've never, you know, I usually like to show my pictures because um, 
you know, pictures are they're a good visual demonstration. This was me in the disease of compulsive overeating, you know, up and down and up and down. Um, me with my newborn daughter in the picture, I was certain I was going to lose that pregnancy weight. And in the pink, my daughter got older and I got fatter, right? Um, and this was what it was like to live in the disease. And then if you continue to the next slide, um, I had some weight loss. There's me in a black dress. I had lost some weight only to regain it again. That leopard sweater um, at the end of my compulsive overeating days. My son is now 14. He was a baby in that picture. Um, that was about what fit me. That was truly about what fit me. And, you know, in the picture underneath, I'm with my sisters. My sisters loved me. I, they always, I have a wonderful, I'm blessed. I have a wonderful family. I have siblings that love me, sister-in-laws, nieces and nephews and in-laws and children. Um, it didn't matter. I always felt separate, alone. Um, I could be in a crowd of people who adored me and I felt separate and detached and isolated in a wall of food. And I don't live that way anymore. I've recovered. I've been relieved. I have followed the directions laid out in the big book. And I am, I am passionate <laughs> about this program. It has saved my life. It has given me everything. Um, and if you look at the last set of pictures in this last slide, that's me. That's what I look like pretty much today. My hair changes a little, little color, a little shorter. Um, every one of those dresses still fits me. And I know that without trying them on. And um, I don't have to get on the scale. You know, I get on the scale when I need to, right? Um, I, I'm abstinent and I'm abstinent happily. I've been recovered and I'm happy in my release. I go out to dinner. I went out last night celebrating my one of my dearest friends' 50th birthdays. And I, you know, sometimes I get an opportunity to witness the way other people eat. And it's interesting. It's very interesting people leaving desserts over. And I have a very structured and disciplined way of my life. Um, and I'm happy. I could actually be with my friends feel the warmth and the love of their company. And I'm not looking at their plate. You know, I used to experience life, whatever was on my plate, my eyes hungered for what was beyond me. I never felt satisfaction with what was put in front of me. And I would say like, before they would cut the first slice, I knew mine wasn't gonna be enough before I've taken a bite. And I don't live that way today. I have enough. Right, I am enough. God has given me everything I need, and um, and I'm happy to share my my story of, of depth and weight and the power of God. And with that, I will pass. Thank you so much, Melissa. Harlan, would you like to call final? Um, Okay. Hi, I'm Harlan G. And I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. And I live in Scottsdale, Arizona. I must think I'm on vision. I don't know why I'm saying all that stuff. Really, really glad to be here this afternoon. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful day. I hope it is where you are too. It's about 91, 92 degrees here. The sun is out and it is just a glorious day in the desert. Um, this disease had me, just like Melissa was sharing, this disease had me right at birth. I have some very vivid memories of people yelling and screaming at my 
uh, mother and my father when I was a little kid, uh, a little, little kid, and uh, before kindergarten. And um, they were screaming at my mother and father about how much food I was eating. They were screaming at my mother and father about how fat I was getting. And then when I got to be about five or six years old, they started screaming directly at me. And they told me things that not only scared me, but they told me things that unfortunately were true. They said things like fat boys do not get girlfriends. Wow, I found that out to be for sure true. I went on my first date when I was 35 years old. Uh, they told me things like fat boys don't get a good job. And I found that to be true. And they told me fat boys will never be on the baseball team. And what I, what I have is a history of feeling like an outsider looking in on this huge gathering of people. And the gathering of people were following their dreams and the gathering of people are recreating and they're, they're getting married and they're going on to all kinds of careers and they're doing all kinds of things that are normal to a person. And I was on the outside with my food. I was on the outside begging God for death. Even when I was six and seven years old, I would diet as best I could. You see, what these people that were screaming at me didn't realize is, and they would say things to me like, young man, if you had any discipline at all, you wouldn't eat that way. Young man, if you had any willpower, you wouldn't eat that way. If you cared about your mother, if you cared about your father, if you cared about yourself, you wouldn't eat that way. They, I didn't know how to explain to them that I cared about my parents. And I, even though at sometimes I was mad at my parents, like any kid is, I wanted to acquiesce to their demands. I did not want to be fat. And the world around me got the idea that somehow I wanted to be fat. And people would say to me all my life, why do you want to be so fat? Why do you want to be so fat? Little did they know that the last thing I wanted to be was as heavy as I was. And then one day when I was nine years old, my mother started screaming at Dr. Jacobson in Yiddish, and he started screaming back at her in Yiddish. And I was put on very heavy duty amphetamines at age nine. And then when I got to be about 10, some of the information was coming out of Los Angeles. Marilyn Monroe had died. And some of the information on the dangers of these amphetamines was coming out. And so what they simply did is they switched me from one amphetamine to another amphetamine. But what, it was exactly the same results. It was exactly the same kind of thing. And as a teenager, it was very, very painful for me. The girls would flip their hair and laugh at my friend's dumb, stupid jokes. And I knew my friends weren't all that funny, but they would laugh at their jokes and, and giggle and touch them. And that was not the reaction that I could get from these girls at all. There's no way they were reacting to me that way. And by the time I was about 12 years old, not only was I emotionally emasculated by this disease, I was physically emasculated by this disease. And the physical ravages of this disease 
follow me right up until today. In many, many ways, with all the recovery that I've had, I still pay the price of the Kentucky Fried Chicken that I ate in 1966. I am still paying that price today. Not only do I have bubby arms, not only do I have pockets of, of, uh, of skin and and flab on my body that only a surgeon can remove. It wouldn't matter what I do, only a surgeon can get rid of them. I pay the price emotionally, I pay the price spiritually. A price has been sucked out of my soul by this disease. The rejection and the sound thumping that I got at the hands of the world around me follow me to this day. Not so much because they're as painful as they were then, but they serve as a lesson to pay reverence and respect to a killer disease. And the disease is permanent, progressive and fatal. And so my recovery has to be permanent, progressive and not fatal, obviously. I have a friend in Oklahoma, he always says, the disease is permanent, progressive and fatal. He says it's the three Ps, permanent, progressive and fatal. But anyway, by the time I was a junior in high school, I went to Mather High School in Chicago on the far north side. I'm a West Rogers Park boy, Devon Avenue. And I went to Mather and when I was a junior at Mather, I broke my ankle in gym class and I went to the doctor and this is when the doctors used to put the cast on you. Now they don't, now the nurses do that or the aides do that. Doctors don't do that anymore. And the doctor looked over his glasses. Thank God I don't wear glasses anymore, which is so nice. I had the uh, cataract surgery recently. And one of the nice things is they said, well, we can fix your vision. I said, you go for it, kid. Best money I ever spent. But anyway, I don't want to get off in the left field there. He looked over his glasses and he was really mad at my mother. And he said, you know, Virginia, he isn't going to live to see 30. He's over 300 pounds and he is 17 years old. And my mother started crying and I was very upset. I didn't want to see my mom cry like that. I was very embarrassed by what the doctor was telling me. He was screaming at me. He was screaming at my mother. And on the way home from the hospital, me and my mother ate most of the 33 flavors that were on, on the fair at the 33 flavor ice cream shop in our neighborhood on Devon Avenue. My mother was a compulsive overeater too. So as soon as we got the news from the doctor, we had for the ice cream shop. I have looked at the world through a fence and to make a long story short, because I only have a couple minutes left, this is what I will tell you. In 1979, on February the 2nd, 1979, two very wonderful friends pushed their way past the filth of my apartment that the rent had not been paid on. They pushed their way past the candy wrappers and they pushed their way past the pizza boxes and they dragged me kicking and screaming to a meeting of Overeaters Anonymous. And I sat in that meeting, very upset. I was 30 years younger than anybody in that room and 300 pounds bigger than any of them. And I knew that I had some problem with food, but I couldn't figure out what the heck you people were doing here. And I looked around that room 
and I cursed every person in, in there in my mind. I would eat my way to the meetings. I would pray for a Russian airstrike during the meetings and I would eat my way home. But now I wanna to talk to you not about how fat I got because I got over 700 pounds. I've lost over 500 pounds. I have 22 years of very nice blissful abstinence over a little over 22 years of abstinence. But I wanna to talk to you about something that's very near and dear to my heart in the last minute that I have. I wanna remind anybody that's here and there are 113 people here. If you are on the struggle bus, if you are struggling, this works. Melissa not only is beautiful of spirit, but she's beautiful inside and out, as are many of the people here. But if you're looking at these people wondering, well, they must have something I don't have. I've been where you are. And probably the most important words that the man behind me ever wrote in that big book called Alcoholics Anonymous are on page 88. And on page 88, the most important sentence I've ever read says, it works. It really does. If you are on that struggle bus, we are here to help you. There is a proven workable method. We have a book and steps in the book and a fellowship of people that will help you. Let us, we need to do that for our own recovery and we insist on doing it to help you. And the only charge that we will give you is that you pass on what you've learned. We ask you from the bottom of our hearts that no matter what you hear here today, no matter what you see here today, that you will know that this program is not about a diet. It's not about going home and being stark raving abstinent, swinging from the chandeliers, not eating. It's about living life in a new way. And with that, I will pass. Thank you. Thank you so much, Harlan. Thank you so much, Melissa. Um, thank you for your very thoughtful uh, qualifications today. So the two of you both spoke to the pain and the insanity of this disease. Um, and we know that we must work vigorously through steps one and nine out of the big book, exactly as written, but that our work does not end with these amends. As stated, we must continue to work our program every single day and that it must be progressive. So step 10 tells us that we continue to take this personal inventory and when wrong, promptly admit it. I'd love to hear from the two of you um, what that looks like, or just to start, I guess, what the big book says on step 10. Thank you. So it's a, it's a, it's an inventory. It's a daily throughout the day, right? Step 10 is whenever things come up, you know, that, that my, my next function, right? This is like the rest of my life, my function now, I've got to grow in understanding and effectiveness. And that for me is done, um, you know, by keeping on watch for my selfishness, my dishonesty, my resentment and fear. And we're promised they're gonna come up, right? It's going to come up. It's not, um, you know, just, and, and I think I had this uh, false sense that when I recovered, really, I thought when I was thin, I thought when I reach a normal weight, I am going 
to like ride off into the sunset and everything will be perfect again. And that's not the case, right? You know, I, um, I, I love what it says like, you know, I've entered the world of the spirit, right? Um, but I'm still gonna mess up while I live in this spiritual plane. And, um, you know, I'm gonna make mistakes. I'm not a saint. So, you know, what does it look like for me? It looks like I get out of whack. I get, you know, something upsets me. I'm, and I react in a way that's human, but for someone like me, um, you know, I'm a distinct entity. And so the way human, other human beings can behave, um, I can't because I don't know what it is in the, me that's broken, but when my emotions build up, I experience it as I want to eat. I, I got to eat. I got to eat. And so what it looks like for me is I call people and I do, and I do a 10 step. And, um, you know, because um, if I don't, I will eat again. And I think we were going to do, right? We were going to do an example of. I've got somebody waiting in the wings. Oh, someone else. Oh, okay. oh, you could do, I could do it with you too. It's fine. I'll do it. That's fine. Okay. Yeah. I thought, um, yeah, I, you know, Harlan, um, I'm really resentful right now. Um, I say good morning to my boss every morning and someone shouldn't say good morning back to me. Okay. What's the first defect of character jumping to the surface in this disturbance with your boss, Melissa? Well, selfishness. The she right. is not, yeah. Yes. She's not it my way. That's not right. the way a boss should behave. Right. What's the next defect of character? Starts with a D. What's the- Oh, I'm dishonest. I'm dishonest because when she doesn't say good morning to me, it's all about me. It's my dishonesty is, um, she, you know, I make up all kinds of stories in my head and I believe them, um, you know, that, that, you know, that it's about me. Um, and, and I have no clue what she's, what's going on in her life. And, and, you know, in that moment, I don't even have a clue. I don't really care. <laughs> it's still all about me. Right. Um, yeah. Okay, so we have some resentment. What's the fear in this scenario with your boss? What's the fear? She doesn't like me. And if she doesn't like me, my job is going to be harder. <laughs> it's going to be harder at work. That's right. Yep. So yep. It, affects our, it affects our money. It affects our life in a way that calls to the basic instincts of life. Let's ask God to remove the defects of character. Uh, silently, let me know when you're done. <clears throat> okay okay good let's assume he's removed the defects why should we assume that because god this is a god of miracles if he can <laughs> do anything that's my god doing six and seven that when asked he would do so okay now you've already discussed him with someone and now let's make amends if we've harmed anybody. If you were rude to your boss or obnoxious towards your boss. Or I talked about her to other colleagues. If you gossip about her, clean it up. And now resolutely turn your thoughts to someone you can help. Love and tolerance of others is our code. So if we can, let's take a look at what just happened between Melissa and I on this phone call. Let's take a look at where it says, 
Our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. I cannot grow without effort. I cannot grow without effort. And you've heard me say this many times probably. If you haven't, buckle up. The two most underutilized steps are two and 10. And the most misunderstood are three and four. And where I see people going into relapse, they're not doing 10, they're not doing 11, and they're not doing 12. But let's take a look at what we have right here in this little half paragraph. It says here, this is not an overnight matter. It should continue for our lifetime. Continue. This is the third continue in one paragraph. In 10, we continue. In 11, we improve. In 12, we practice. We continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. What step did we use to look at selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear? Step four. When these things crop up, that's the key word here is when they crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. Because the writer of the book, God, not the guy behind me, he had three and a half years of sobriety. He was 46 years old. He did not know enough to write one of the greatest pieces of spiritual literature that the world has ever seen. This is a God-inspired book. I believe he used God's or Bill's hand. Yes, no question about it. But we're going to ask God at once to remove the defects of character. That means we're going to use six and seven. So we've done four, six, and seven so far. We discuss them with someone immediately, step five, and make amends quickly, eight and nine, if we've harmed anyone. Then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Love and tolerance of others is our code. So we're doing 12 while we're doing 10. In nine, they allude to the meditation and prayer part. So they're alluding to 11. We work the steps together. So that what is one of the big mistakes of 10? Waiting too long to start it. We do not start 10 when we're done with nine, unless we want to go back to Kitkatville. Because what's going to happen is we're going to go death by Dorito. Because the amends are going to bring up emotions, jealousy, fear, anger. They're going to bring up historical emotions that without 10, we're going to eat. It's a certainty. And so one of the biggest mistakes I see is starting it too late. We, I start people on 10 the minute we're done with six and seven, which is one hour after we're done with five. It says here, we vigorously commence this way of living as we cleaned up the past. We clean up the past in four through nine. Not after we've cleaned up the past, as we've cleaned up the past. You have to read each word. It's, it's, it's really something that you have to look at each word and we look at this and we see we need to start it and we need to start doing it. If they wanted us to go in order, they would have said, we commence this way of living after we cleaned up the past. It would say, it wouldn't say resolutely turn your thoughts to someone you can help. It would say, when you get to 12, this is what you'll do. But we work them together. We work them together. The only qualification for 12 is having had a spiritual awakening. Well, what is the description after this paragraph? It's exactly the characteristics of the spiritual awakening that we should have by this time. I'm going to turn it back to Melissa because I didn't mean to steal her thunder here. Okay, it's all. What I want, 
I want to make sure we understand is we start it as soon as we you know get out of four, then we go to five, and then you take that hour. As soon as we're done with six and seven, how long should six and seven take? About a minute for the two steps. If it's taking more than a minute, I'm probably doing it wrong. Six and seven, very quick. Boom, boom. Be willing, say the prayer, you're done. That's it. There's no written assignments. There's no readings. There's no davening. There's no nothing. You don't have to go to Torah class. You don't have to do any of that stuff. There's a Yiddish word I'm going to teach you. It's called ungebluzel. Ungebluzel in Yiddish means overblown. Six, seven, one minute, you're in, you're out. Done. And then we start on eight, nine, 10, and 11. I didn't use to spit when I talked. But I'm going to give it back to Melissa because I didn't mean to do that. Sorry That's, about that. She's going to get a resentment against me. It's if I all do. good. I'll, I'll call Susan after now. I'll be kidding, Arlen. Um, no, I definitely like. There's a part that I wanna that I wanna uh, expand upon, and it's um, the love and tolerance as my code because we're told that we enter, you know, we've entered this spiritual plane now, and I, for me, I just love this because um, it tells me that I have a code. And I say it's like my standard operating procedure. And it's especially applicable when I'm thinking about my boss, right? So two seconds ago, I was telling you that my selfishness says she's not doing it the right way. Well, in order for me to live in this world of the spirit, I can't concern myself too much with what the right way is. I don't live in my standard operating procedure is right and wrong. It's not fair and unfair. It's not, you know, um, because I'll die if that's gonna be my code. So my code has to be love and tolerance, right? That has to be my code. And what I've learned is that tolerance, it really speaks to more of myself and less about, it's not like I have to stomach other people. I have to tolerate it. It's, I have to tolerate, I've got to get a little less sensitive. I have to grow a little thicker skinned because I, I say addicts and I could speak for myself. I was the most, and I still, unfortunately I am very, very sensitive and that's selfish, right? I am so everything affects poor little me, right? And part of having love and tolerance means I can tolerate my own discomfort a little more. And that to me, I think is an important part of my 10 step understanding is that, um, you know, I think about this tolerance almost like when people build up a tolerance to a certain medication and they might have to take more of it in order to get the effect. And I think that's the same thing with other people. I say part of being a recovered woman is a lot of things they don't, they really don't bother me. I mean, I sort of made a joke about my boss. Most of the time, her not saying good morning to me, I'm, I still say good morning because I also have a code and that's love. And I've been taught, you know, I'm, I'm a child of my parents. My parents brought me up with certain respect, right? This is my boss. You say good morning to her. What she does, not my business, right? And I have tolerance. I'm not so sensitive. I don't have to keep score of it. And, and I can pray. Part of my prayer is that I can 
manage, you know, I can bring my discomfort to God. I can bring my discomfort to God. Um, other people don't give me my comfort value. Other people, I'm not relying on other people to get me comfortable in the world. Um, so that's really what I wanted to jump in on that step 10 as well. That's an important part for me. Okay. Just to expand on step 10, this is not something that you do just in the morning or at night. That is step 11. Step 10 is an as you need it step throughout the day. You don't have to write them out if you don't want to. The continuing to take personal inventory is a separate thought. And from time to time, I will go back and do a full-blown fourth step. My strong suggestion is if something is really bothering you and these 10 steps that you're doing, are just not, they're just not getting it done on a certain, maybe there's somebody that's really made you mad. Maybe there's somebody that really is whatever it is. I would suggest doing a fourth step on it. But the 10th step is an as needed thing throughout the day. And when we look at this, this paragraph, there's magic in this paragraph, just magic. What was the problem? Was the problem food? Not by a long shot. Food was never the problem in the first place. Food, for me, was the solution to the problem. Now, if food was the solution to the problem, what was the problem? Lack of power is my dilemma. Lack of power over what? Lack of power over the buildup of everyday, normal human emotions. Now, all human beings have emotions. All human beings have anger, fear, jealousy, lust, happiness. I've eaten railroad cars full of Doritos and Chips Ahoy cookies when things went well for me. What do they say? The only thing worse in an addict's life when things go bad, the only thing worse is when they go good because now I feel impregnable. All these jealousies and lusts and all these crazy things that go on in my head, in a normal person, they can dissipate the toxicity of these emotions by doing normal things. They can go to a gym, take a walk with their dog. They can pet the cat. They can read a book. They can listen to music. They can drive out a bucket of golf balls. Whatever that is for that person, they can engage in these behaviors and they're fine. They're perfectly, perfectly fine. But in my heart, my soul, my brain, these emotions will start to pinball and my brain knows that my chip, the, the Chips Ahoy cookies or the Kit Kat bars or whatever that may be will set this right, will make it right in my head. Let's take a look at page XXVII, XXVII in the doctor's opinion. At the very bottom of the page, if the book was a building, this would be the cornerstone of the building. And it says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it's injurious, I knew I was killing myself. They cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. 
Does that mean I think today's Tuesday? No. What it means is I will reach for that candy. I will reach for that potato chip or whatever that is, that bagel, that cream cheese, whatever that is. And I will hope against hope that this time it won't kill me, that it won't trigger that allergy. That, in other words, that actual physical craving for more of the same. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks which they see others taking with impunity and impunity comes from the word punis, which is the root word for punish. They see, like Melissa was describing, her friends went out to dinner last night and they leave part of the dessert. Why do they leave part of the dessert? Are they better than her? Smarter than her? No, they don't have the physical allergy. They don't have the physical component to the disease. So the food doesn't do for them. They also don't have the mental twist. They don't get the effect. So the cake doesn't do for them what it does for Melissa and I, and you apparently, and it doesn't do to them what the food does to us because they have no urge to overeat it. In other words, when those emotions build up within me, my brain knows that there is a solution and the solution comes in a bag or a bakery box, or it comes with a wrapper. And those candy bars are going to give me that sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly. Who doesn't like instant relief? The only problem is I also have that physical allergy. What is that? Now, I know we're supposed to be talking about step 10. Give me a second. I'm going to come back around to step 10. They don't have that physical allergy. See, if, if all that was wrong with me was this mental twist and I need that effect, I would carry M&Ms around with me in a Batman utility belt. Obviously, peanut M&Ms. I don't know who buys the other ones. These people are obviously not Jewish. They buy these other M&Ms. I buy the ones with peanuts. Call me crazy. Okay, fine. Now, I buy, I buy some M&Ms. I keep them in my utility belt. I get some emotional buildup. I pop an M&M and I'm good. I'm good. Right. Right. The only problem is the physical allergy takes over and I'm going to eat all the M&Ms I can get my hands on, on my way to McDonald's, on my way to pizza, on my way to the bakery. Now, what does this have to do with step 10? I'll explain. My brain sent out that signal to go eat the food because of a level of discomfort that was brought about by the buildup of these emotions that I am absolutely powerless over and that lack of power became my dilemma over these emotions. You with me so far? Good. Now, what if I could find a way, hmm, what if I could find a way to live where my mind does not have to lock in on that sense of ease and comfort? What if I could find a way to live where I already feel better? And the process of bringing that comfort into my life is called recovery. 
And that's what this is all about, Charlie Brown. This is about substituting the effect of the food for the effect of the steps. And that's what this is all about, Charlie Brown. That's what it's about. And so by using step 10 as a vital step, as the most imperative action I can take when these emotions are upon me, I can now make my brain feel better and it doesn't see the need to drive me into the food. What about us listens to the voices within our soul that demands that we destroy ourselves with food? What is it about our soul that listens to the song of death? What is it about our lives that we would raise our hand to ourselves and destroy the little life we have where we haven't the heart or the mind to do that even to our worst enemies? Most of the men and women that I knew, not all, not all, but most of the men and women that I knew as a little child came out of the concentration camps of Poland and they were people with tattoos on their arms and lots of stories and thick accents like my father had a really thick accent. He, he could, English was very tough for my father. He didn't like speaking English. He, he felt put upon when he had to speak English. So he only did it when he had to. But they would grab my face like this and they would say, live until you die. Live until you die. This step, this 10th step is the great emancipator. It is the great emancipator from this imminent urge to eat because of the buildup of emotions. And that's where that urge has been coming from, from day one. The 10th step is truly God's cold shower. <laughs> and is it a wonder that when the, what is the most asked question in vision? It's a question that comes up every week. I've been listening to a vision for you for years. This question does not fail to come up every week in vision. Sometimes it will come up three, four times in a week. What's the number one question? What's the difference between recovered and recovering? Yes. And here on page 84 at the bottom and most of 85 is the answer to that question. No wonder it comes after the description and instructions for step 10. And what is the one imperative thing in this? You have to keep doing it. If we don't continue to do this, continue, continue, continue to continue. And if we stay the same, if we just use the same effort to recover, we're going to get tackled from behind. As the disease is progressive, my recovery must be progressive as well. If my recovery is not progressive, I'm going backwards. Absolutely. I'm going backwards. We are immature, sensitive rebels. As immature, sensitive rebels, 
Things are going to make me mad. They're going to scare me. Things are constantly changing. Sometimes I like the change. More often than not, I'm uncomfortable with it. I lean into this step with everything I have because I am an immature, sensitive rebel. And so this step becomes vital, vital to separate from dieting with group support and transitionalizing into a true spiritual awakening. Back to you. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So this, you know, I'm glad you brought up the doctor's opinion because there's also something in there that tells me why I have to do these things as opposed to my colleagues, right? My colleagues are equally annoyed, right, by my boss. But I'm a distinct entity, and I'm told that in the doctor's opinion too. And I think, you know, a lot of times it's talking about um, the phenomenon, right? So I have this phenomenon, as we have suggested, it's a manifestation of an allergy which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. And so what that tells me is I can't live the way that other people can live. I act, I have to have a 10, 11, and 12. This is how I must live because my colleagues, they get annoyed at the boss too. And they actually, interestingly enough, sometimes they do seek a little ease and comfort from food, but they don't have the punitive effect. So they can say, oh my God, I can't believe she did that again right? I need, I got, I need a piece of chocolate. And that is actually what they need, a piece of chocolate. I can't do that, right? I do that and, and I'm dead. I'm dead, right? So I love that the, you know, the 10 step promises ceased fighting. And I'm going to read it because I just think it's worth us really hearing. And, and then I'll share on that, that we've ceased fighting anything or anyone and I would put the, okay, even alcohol. And I would say, even my boss, right? Even, the, even whatever it is, even my kids who don't do the dishes, whatever it is, I'm not in the fighting business. I'm a distinct entity. I live over here where, with, with plenty of you guys all, by the way, you're distinct entities too. We live on, and I say to people that I work with, um, take a piece of paper and fold it in half. All the rest of the world get pissed off at their bosses, go out to dinner and split pieces of cake, can have a piece of chocolate, can, can fight with their mother-in-laws, can, can get riled up about politics. They, they could do all sorts of things. And then there's people like me and I have to cease fighting anything or anyone. I live on this side of the page. And good news is that, you know, we heard on Vision for You today, right? I got a whole community of fellows that live on that side of the page with me. So I'm not so alone. I'm really, I'm not so alone there. I've ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. For by this time, sanity will have returned. What does it mean that I'm sane? It means that when I'm interested, <laughs> seldomly, I recoil. I react like a, like a sane person. I know that for me to eat that piece of chocolate is poisonous. It will kill me. And a sane person doesn't look to ingest things that they know are poison. That's, that's, that's what it means to be sane. If tempted, we recoil as if from a hot flame. 
We react sanely and normally, and we will find this has happened automatically, right? I'm not using willpower to stay away from the food. It's, it's like, that to me is crazy because I thought that Overeaters Anonymous was going to give me more willpower. That's why I came here. I thought, oh, that's right. Now I'm gonna become one of those women that have great willpower and I will refuse the food or I'll be able to eat it in moderation. I'll be able to eat certain things. No, mm -mm, that's not what this program promises you. You know, it's what we get is a new attitude, a different attitude toward liquor. And it's been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes, that's the miracle of it. So, you know, I'm, I'm a woman um, and my step one understanding was um, only an act of providence, only a miracle, nothing short of a miracle is going to relieve me. No food plan, no mean sponsor, no phenomenal meeting, only an act of providence, only a miracle. And that's, you know, and, and we have a miracle. We're not fighting it, nor are we avoiding temptation. I go anywhere a free woman goes, anywhere. I don't have to stay home. I don't have to say, oh my God, I'm not gonna eat that cake. I'm not gonna eat that cake. I'm not gonna eat that cake. Not at all, right? Not at all. We feel as though we've been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected, right? Can you imagine to feel safe and protected? Um, we've not even sworn off. I don't have to swear it off. It's not, it's not, it just is, it just is. Instead, the problem has been removed. It doesn't exist for us. We are neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is our experience. That is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition, right? So that to me, I don't need willpower. You know, imagine going from complete inability, right? to summon up enough willpower to stick to a diet. That was me. Couldn't stick to a diet. Unable to resist the very foods I knew were problematic. I knew them at a young age to a place where I can easily refuse food. Doesn't, it doesn't hold any interest for me. It can be, I can be at any occasion. I don't have mm -hmm. to avoid it. I don't have to be afraid. I can be free. I can actually be free. And this has happened to me, not by me, right? It happened to me. Um, I can continue to live like this so long as I stay spiritually fit. And we also know that our spiritual fitness, although I love to pray and meditate, I, I love prayer and meditation, I really do. But that's not really where my spiritual fitness comes, right? That's a piece of it. Prayer and meditation, crucial, but it really comes through work and self-sacrifice. It comes through hard work and giving of ourselves. And when I say self-sacrifice, it's not writing a fat check. It's not seventh traditioning, although that's great too, right? We do want to support our meetings. It's through giving of my time. That's the greatest self-sacrifice I can have of all. It's, you know, how often, if you're thinking about your recovery, how often are you taking those calls from newcomers? How often are you picking up the phone and maybe not watching Netflix so much, right? 
that's self-sacrifice. That for me is self-sacrifice. Like instead of binge watching some, some program on TV, um, call some new people. Spend, you know, there's nothing as powerful for me as spending time talking to someone, going through the doctor's opinion with them or going through, you know, some, some of the work with them. Um, and basically, I'm given immunity by working with others. That's what we're told in, in step 12. That's the immunization. So I don't need willpower to stay away from the food. You know, um, I, I go everywhere, everywhere. Um, and I don't rely on willpower, um, you know, and, but step 11 does talk a little bit about good use of the will. And, and that's something that I think we should discuss because we're told there is places where we actually have to use willpower, right? Where is there good use of the will? You know, well, if I start letting up on my spiritual program of action, and I rest on my laurels, then I'm headed for trouble, right? Because alcohol is a subtle foe and we're not cured. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into our activities. How can I best serve thee? Thy will not mine be done. What's good use of the will? Carrying that thought with me constantly, right? I have to constantly think about using my willpower to seek God's will, right? I have to lay Melissa's will <laughs> to one side and I can use willpower to live in agreement with God's will for me. And when I'm overly focused on myself, my little plans, my designs, I can, you know, that's when I can use willpower to start focusing on others instead, right? So when instead, when my boss gets me worked up, I can use willpower to say, okay, Melissa, do not go into your colleague's room across the hall and start complaining. Get in your classroom right now, right? And find there's work to be done there. Because for me, I can, I can be other-centered in my profession too. Yes, I can do it in this fellowship. Um, you know, when I want to play God, I can use my willpower to quit, it, to quit it. I can knock it off. I can stop playing God. I actually can use my willpower in that regard. I can use my willpower to pray, I can actually say at that moment, you know what? I'm not going to go into my colleagues across the room. I'm not going to go into her room. I'm going to go in my room and I'm going to stop right now and I'm going to pray, right? I can use willpower to pray. I can use it to meditate. I can use it to call a fellow, right? All of those are ways that I can use my willpower. I can use willpower to stay away from gossip and negativity, you know? And I say actually practicing this way of living often requires lots of willpower. It does, it does. You know, I, I found um, for me, gossip, complaining and gossiping is like eating a bag of potato chips. It looks so delicious, right? And you think I can just put my hand in and sample a few, right? And I gossip and I complain for a minute and it's, ooh, it's like there's a, I get a charge. There's a delight. 
and other people are putting their hand in that bag too, right? But that becomes for me, just like eating potato chips. It's like, I can't stop. I can't stop. And I'm left feeling greasy, dirty, greasy, nauseous, right? And I have to use willpower. And now here's the thing, right? I'm a distinct entity. I said that in, in doctor's opinion. So although my colleagues who I love can actually come together and I say it's, it's kind of cheap intimacy. They get a hit off of trashing the boss. They feel closer together. I can't feel closer at the expense of another person because I'm a distinct entity. I have a code. It's love and tolerance, right? It's not loving to my principal and it's not tolerant and it's not loving towards my colleagues either. It's actually, it's negative and it's, and it's harmful, right? So it sounds so crazy, really? Really, I have to stop gossiping? Yes, really, I have a different code I have to live by. And um, because I wanna feel closer to God and not seeking God's will, I have to use willpower. How does God want Melissa to show up in the world today? Yes, it's great that I'm, I can wear any of those dresses, right? That's lovely. But I really, I think a greater demonstration hmm. of my ability to carry this message of the awesome miracle of a healing is I'm a different woman today. I am not full of self-pity. When my colleagues come to see me, I have something good to offer them, right? I have, I have maybe, you know, an, an interesting approach to it, to an educational strategy, or I have something uplifting and positive to say. I'm not, I'm not dragging people down. And, and I found it's directly related for me, it is directly related. And that for me is my good use of the will. And I use these steps, these principles to carry that message into my, into my world. Because then I do get asked from people that I work with about maybe what, how, did, how is it that you've lost all that weight and you don't eat? And, you know, I'm careful how I carry the message. I don't come at them with God because I know that turns people off, right? But I can talk about living a different principled way. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop at that point with the, with the exercising the willpower and uh, turn thank it. Thanks. Melissa, thank you so much for bringing us from 10 into 11. And um, with step 11, we know it says, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. So Harlan, do you have any insight into what the difference is between prayer and meditation? And also how did this practice of yours develop? The, pra the practice that I do is just like anything else. It is a work in progress. My relationship with God, my relationship with anyone and everyone in this world, including myself is a work in progress. But let's take a look at the very bottom of page 85, and it says step 11 suggests prayer and meditation. We shouldn't be shy on this matter of prayer. Better men than us, than we, are using it constantly. It works if we have the proper attitude and work at it. Again, here is that constant reminder in the book that I have to work at it. In step 10, I'm told it should continue for my li our lifetime. I'm also told that, I'm, that everything is on my fit spiritual condition. 
Now I have to work at it. It would be easy to be vague about this matter, yet we believe we can make some definite and valuable suggestions. The first thing let's, dis let's distinguish is, what is the difference between prayer and meditation? When I was about six years old, I used to pray, God, let me be the first baseman for the Cubs. Let me be the quarterback for the Bears. Help me win a million dollars. Help me whatever. Or uh, one of my favorite, uh, favorite things to pray for was things I wanted. I wanted this and I wanted that and give me this and give me that. That's not prayer. That's petition. That's prayers to Santa Claus. That's prayers to the tooth fairy. That's, that's, not, that's narishkeit. Narishkeit is a Yiddish word for foolishness. That's just praying for what I want. Or the most common prayer I hear every day is, let me win the lottery and I swear I'll take care of the synagogue or the church or the poor, or I'll give money to well, this charity or that charity. Well, that's not prayer. That's petitioning. What is meditation? Where does this come from? The word meditation means something a little different to Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob than it means to us today. Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob were in Akron, Ohio in the summer of 1935. And in the summer of 1935, they would get up in the morning and they would do their prayers and they would hit right out to Akron City Hospital to see if there was a drunk that they could work with. And Ann Smith would stand at the door and say to the boys, go back in the living room and take your quiet time. Meditation today usually means that we're engaging in a meditation to them, Bill and Bob. And when the book was written, it meant taking your quiet time. And where I had a transition was from speaking to God and telling him how big my problems were to listening to God and telling my problems how big my God is. And that is a process. That is not something that happens overnight. And if you're struggling with step two, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. And Melissa talked about sanity in step 10. Came to believe suggests that this relationship with a higher power is something to be worked at for the rest of my life. Came to believe is not a destination, but a journey. That a power greater than myself could restore me to what? To sanity. Notice it doesn't say came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sobriety. Notice that it doesn't say that a power greater than myself could restore me to abstinence or recovery. Those are very, very low ceilings. When it says came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity, that's a much more open-ended arena. That's a much more, uh, much more much more all-encompassing kind of situation. I find that through prayer and meditation and action that I am healing in areas that I didn't even know were broken. They were putrefied and vandalized by a disease that I caught when I was born. And the personal relationships, my financial insecurities, my the way I deal with myself, the way I deal with the world, 
I was driving with my ex-wife one day when she was still my wife, not my ex-wife. And she said something to me that really, really opened me up. Hold on one second. <clears throat> Sorry. My focaccia allergies have been acting up because everything is in bloom here now. Everything is just out there and the desert is just blooming and everything is, is out there now. And I'm not crying, trust me. Um, but everything is just blooming right now. And uh, it is just wreaking havoc on me. But my wife said to me, if you spoke to your friends, like you speak to yourself, would you have any? I treated myself horribly and spoke to myself as if I was my own worst enemy. Today, I have a working relationship with God. I have a working relationship with myself. And now when I look in the mirror, yes, I wish there were some things different. I wish I didn't have bubby arms and all this other stuff, but I like me. And how does that develop? How does that happen? Just through prayer and meditation? No, that's a part of it, yes. But it's through doing self-esteemable actions, learning I can trust myself, that when I go out into the world and I say, I'm not gonna eat M&Ms today, I don't eat M&Ms today. When I go out into the world and say, I'm not gonna lie to people. I used to lie when the truth would have served me better. I used to steal, I used to write bad checks. I was a conniver and a manipulator. I'm none of those things anymore. And I like myself today because I live a life of integrity. And if I don't live a life of integrity, I'm gonna hate myself and it's gonna bleed into all areas of my life and eventually I'm going to eat. But let's take a look at why, why we have the nighttime section of step 11 before the daytime section, because that's a commonly asked question too. And the reason is because it is assumed by the guys behind me and the guys who had input into the book that you would be doing step 10 throughout the day. And this is where a lot of people confuse 10 and 11. They think 10 is something that you do in the morning and at night. Certainly you can do 10 in the morning and at night, but you do them throughout the day. Let's take a look at page 86. When we retire at night, we constructively review our day. A hammer to your head is not one of the tools of recovery. And beating yourself unmercifully Beating on yourself for the mistakes that you've made is old behavior that does not bring you closer to a recovery. Most of it is just a defense mechanism. We figure if we can beat ourselves up, then maybe it won't hurt so much when others beat on us. But there's no one else there. You're alone with your thoughts. Constructively review our day. Were we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? I think that's step four again, don't you? Do we owe an apology? Step nine, or step 10, step nine, sorry. Have we kept something to ourselves which should be discussed with another person at once? Step five, were we kind and loving toward all? Step 10, what could we have done better? Again, with what we could have done better, a hammer to your head is not one of the tools of recovery. I'm not saying don't be objective. What I'm saying is beating on yourself is not helpful. 
Were we thinking of ourselves most of the time? Or were we thinking of what we could do for others, of what we could pack into the stream of life? But we must be careful not to drift into worry, remorse, or morbid reflection, for that would diminish our usefulness to others. After making our review, we ask God's forgiveness and inquire what corrective measures should be taken. So we're going to bed and we are gonna ask ourselves these questions. And we're gonna be merciful toward ourselves. We're gonna be loving and kind. You know what it says, love and mercy, love and kindness, love and tolerance. We don't just afford that to others. We afford it to God and we afford it to ourselves. Now I'm gonna let Melissa talk about the daytime section of the 11th step, because this is very important. And this is pure Oxford group. This is all pure Oxford group. Okay, beautiful. Thanks, Harlan. I, you know, there was one thing I wanted to say um, in regards to the proper attitude also, because you did mention step two. And, um, you know, for me, in order to really practice my step 11, um, I have to have the right attitude. And, and almost, you know, in the story when we were reading um, in We Agnostics about the Wright brothers, this almost this childlike faith. I really do have to keep very closely connected um, to that mindset, you know, and, and in the spiritual experience, you know, it talks about the principle, which is a bar, right? against all information, which is proof against all arguments and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. And that principle is contempt prior to investigation. And so if you're struggling, right? People say, oh, I can't, I can't get it because I don't, I, don't, I don't feel God or I don't understand God. Okay, you can't grow spiritually if you have contempt before investigating. And basically, for me, what that means is I have to stop being so damn cool, right? I'm not so cool. Um, I can't think that it's beneath my consideration, right? To pray and meditate and seek God. I really have to come with an attitude of humility, of necessity and humility. I can't think I'm too good for God and then expect that I'm going to get strength, inspiration and direction, right? And so, um, you know, the, I'm going to talk about the, on the bottom of page 86, right, um, to uh, 87, it describes our morning prayer and meditation practice. And um, on awakening, we think about the 24 hours ahead. We consider our plans for the day. Before we begin, we ask God to direct our thinking, especially asking that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonesty, or self-seeking motives. Under these conditions, we can employ our mental faculties with assurance. After all, God gave us brains to use. Our thought life will be placed on a much higher plane when, we, when our thinking is cleared of wrong no motives. So I think what's significant is that I consider my plans for the day. I don't create the plan and then expect that God is gonna fall in line and everybody else is gonna fall in line for, for the great Melissa's plan. I have to consider it. And as I'm considering it, I'm gonna be thinking about others and how it's gonna impact them, right? So, you know, I, I 
don't just make decisions. In my prayer and morning meditation, I, I do have a prayer practice. And because this disease is progressive, so is my prayer life. It progresses. I'm not doing the same prayers that I did five years ago. I'm not doing the same ones I did last week, right? As life, what I found, I grow spiritually through a little discomfort. <laughs> I get a problem and it's like, oh, I've got to really like go to God with this one and grow. Um, you know, my, my particular prayer, um, I need a relationship. That's what we're told. We need a relationship with God. And so I have to go to God. My God um, has to be one that I crave, that I want a relationship with. And for me, it means that my- God keeps pushing me off the blanket. What that means is that my prayer has to, and it's got to grow. And it, for me, it has to be like, I'm going to somebody I want a relationship with. And I, you know, and I know that there's like checklists, lots of people have checklists, right? Like, did I do this? Did I do that? And yes, we are just, we need discipline. We're told that we need discipline. But if I, in my relationship with God, God cannot be an obligation. It can't be something I tick off on a list and think that that's a relationship, right? So I have to go to God with a spirit, with an attitude of something I want a relationship to. And so my prayer life changes. It grows and it's reworked as new problems come up. It, you know, I say like anybody that presents any difficulty to me in my life, I've got a prayer with your name on it. <laughs> like, you know, I've got a personal prayer for everybody and not that they're going to change. No, it's so that I can find love and consideration as I set my course about the day. You know, um, I, I know that God gave me my brain to use, my mental, my mental ability, my intelligence, but my motives now are on a higher plane. So, um, you know, I, I say like, here's an example, right? I, I wanted to take a day off work. I don't know why today, like work is just Maybe it's Sunday, tomorrow's Monday. I wanted to take a day off work last week in the worst way, right? And um, now I can take a personal day, right? I have enough days, I can take personal days. I'm contractually allowed to, but I don't have a lot of those. They're, they're like, they're in short supply. I have a lot of sick days, a lot of sick days. That's there if you're sick, right? Okay. Mm. I'm a woman who follows the directions. I live to look and live in agreement with God's will for me, which means I'm honest. I can't lie and say I'm sick when it's a personal day. I know that for me, I'm falling out of alignment with, with, with what I understand is God's will, right? We're seeking God's will, God's will. Um, so I can take a personal day, but now if I'm making a consideration, I also, I have an aging mom. Right. And since I have a limited number of personal days, I kind of have to save those for my for when I'm called upon something for my for my mom. You know, she's in her 80s and I and I need sometimes time for that. So I can't make it a personal day. Right. Just like that. Now, if I'm not seeking God's will, here's what can happen for someone like me. I'll say, well, you know, um, this district owes me right? They suck. They owe me. They don't follow regulations. They, you know, they blah, blah, blah. And 
if I don't seek God's will, if I don't practice a 10th step, if I don't practice an 11th step, I will do those things. I will do those things. And then I'm harboring a resentment and not long behind is, is the food, right? It's directly related. So I consider my plans for the day, right? And really what happened to me when I considered my plans for the day was, mm, I kind of realized that, um, you know, it's my ego that wants the, 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 the day off right now, because I loved Harlan, your explanation this morning about the ego and the three things that are at work about that ego. And the one that really got me was, I want what I want right now. I want to feel good right now. My ego doesn't want to wait, right? Doesn't want to wait. So, you know, for what happens, if I consider my plans for the day and I'm thinking, how is it going to impact other people? Um, then it came to my mind in my meditation, it is going to impact other people that I, you know, right now in this pandemic, I have students that come in for in-person instruction. They're not there every day. Their parents who have to make a living are reliant on this woman showing up and them getting instruction because they'll, they won't actually have school. And that's, that's a whole other resentment list, right? And, and I could live there too and say, that's not right you know, screw them. That's not right. That's not my code. It's love and tolerance. So yeah, I had to consider my plans for the day and it was suck it up, go to work, suck it up and go to work. You'll get off on Saturday and Sunday. Right. And, you know, and I did the right thing, right. I go to work. And when I face indecision, we're told in thinking about our day, we may face indecision. We may not be able to determine which course to take here. We ask God, inspiration and intuitive thought or a decision. We relax and take it easy. We don't struggle. We're often surprised how the right answers come after we've tried this for a while, right? And really what happened for me and in my quiet time, I paused, I, I almost clicked the, the little button on there on my, on my, like I do it virtually, I can take off the day. I almost did it. Pause, I meditate, I bring it in. What, what flashed before me, now I know this is God doing for me what I cannot do for myself, is I saw a couple of the kids visually in my mind. I just sort of saw them and I thought, oh, crap, right? All right, I get the message. You know, and the other thing that kind of came to me was a lot of those kids, actually, they get free breakfast and lunch. Now, here I am. I'm so selfish. I'm only concerned with my district doesn't do what's right by me. Um, you know what, if I'm thinking about fair and just, why is it that I have a food full of refrigerator, you know, a refrigerator full of food? I never think, well, that's not fair to people who aren't eating, right? My selfishness is I take that completely for granted. But in my prayer and meditation, what came to me was, yeah, these kids actually have to come to school because they get breakfast and lunch there. And if their parents are expecting that they're going to be in school that day, they might actually not get breakfast and lunch, right? Now that's an intuitive thought. That's an inspirational thought. That was a thought, trust me, did not come from me. It came from God. I know it came from God because I wouldn't have thought that way. I don't think that way on my own. That's the work of this step, you know, of these steps. And, you know, how do I know that it's, that it's God? Uh, you know, because sometimes it says we may pay, you know, for this presumption, all sorts of absurd actions and ideas. There was nothing absurd about me going to work. 
that was pretty like mundane. It didn't feel so absurd to do. And nevertheless, we find our thinking will, as time passes, be more and more on the plane of inspiration. We come to rely on it, you know? And so at the end of that, when I say my prayer and meditation, I ask God to, you know, help me show up in love and tolerance. And I seek his will for me. Um, we conclude the period of meditation with a prayer that we be shown all throughout the day what our next step is to be, that we be given whatever we need to take care of such problems. You know, and so we ask, you know, especially for freedom of self-will, you know, and so for me, what does that mean? And then like, I was going to go to work that day and actually have a smile on my face. I was going to say good morning to my principal. I wasn't going to take out my list and be like, mm, third time this week, she didn't say good morning back. Uh-uh, right? I can, that's where I can use good use of the will. Willpower, I put it to the side, right? Um, and, you know, I ask for myself, however, if others will be helped. So what did I ask for myself? I asked God, please, please help me show up with a smile on my face. You know, please help me have, a, have the right attitude about being there. Because I know it's going to be useful for other people. I know that it would impact the way that I interact with others. Um, I don't care. I don't pray for my own selfish ends. Many of us have wasted a lot of time doing that. And it doesn't work. You could easily see why. And that was what you had talked about before too, Harlan. Every prayer of mine used to be, God, please make me skinny. <laughs> please make me thin. Just make me thin. Make my mother-in-law not say blank, right? Make my kids, please, God, let me come downstairs and have there be no dishes in the sink. Right. Let them do what they're supposed to do. Let my kids get good grades. Let my husband, you know, whatever, like whatever it was. I, all my prayers were always all about me. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Why? Why? Because I'm not God. And I don't I don't have the blueprint for how this life is supposed to unfold. You know, um, it, it does say that we are quick to see where religious people are right make use of what they offer. And I would say that goes back to me not having contempt prior to investigation. Nothing is beneath my consideration. I know we don't talk about specifics in terms of prayer because we're open, the you know broad, roomy, all-inclusive, never exclusive to those who earnestly seek. My job is to earnestly seek without having contempt, without you know thinking anything is beneath me. Um, when I get agitated and doubtful throughout the day, I pause, right? I stop. I ask for the right thought or action, constantly reminded, no longer running the show. Humbly saying to ourselves many times each day, thy will be done. Much less danger of excitement, fear, anger, self-pity, and foolish decisions become much more efficient. We don't tire so easily, which is why Harlan could get up at what, like 3 a.m. and do a special edition and then come here. Uh, we don't tire so easily because we're staying in our own lane, right? We're not playing God and um, arranging life to suit ourselves. So with that, I'm gonna stop. Thank you both so much. Um, we just have a few more minutes before the Q&A segment. I know we wanna hear from, um, everyone here so could you both just like briefly I know you know it's hard to encompass but talk about step 12 um talk about what it's like to uh carry the message as you've both been doing so gracefully thank you this <laughs> this this is it this is it in a nutshell right 
this is why we do it. This is, um, you know, this is the immunization. If you don't want to fall prey to the food, when you've got it, you give it 100%, right? Give it away 100%. It is, I know for myself, and I know it is for Arlen too, it's a joy. It's a privilege and it's an honor. This program saved my life. It, it saved my life and it saved the lives of my family. I know it. It has given like limitless supply. And so I do this, um, this is this is the purpose of my life. I think um, I was meant to do this. I believe I was meant to do this. This has been the answer to all my prayers. I only thought being a compulsive overeater was awful. It really wasn't, it was a gift. It was a gift. I, I get, you know, hundreds of friends. I get to passionately help others. Um, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna let Harlan finish up with this. Thank you. Um, step 12, that's why we were born. We are the only people in the entire world that are qualified to speak and understand the language of the heart. We understand what it's like to pee in our pants. We understand what it's like not to be able to look like the other kids. We are the only ones that have ever experienced the disease in its active form. And we are the only ones that have had a spiritual awakening that have experienced the recovery. Step 12 is a definite three-part step. And it tells you when you need to sponsor. And now if you're afraid to sponsor, you're going to be in trouble. I'd be afraid not to. My friend in South Jersey she says it best. She said, if you're afraid to sponsor, you better be more afraid not to sponsor. This is a 12-step program, not an 11-step program. Don't be concerned with results. The number one paralyzing factor in sponsorship is I want to get results because I'm worried about what people will think of me or I'm worried about am I going to help them or hurt them. If they want to recover, you can't say the wrong thing. If they don't want to recover, you can't say the right thing. Ebby brought this message to Bill. Dash, if I cared to have it. If I cared to have it. And as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics. Not a message, not some message, not my message, certainly, but the message of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I let the big book do my sponsoring for me. I don't need any ancillary readings. I don't need any ancillary writings. I don't need any of these other assignments. I use the big book to bring me through the steps. And we are all carrying a message, whether we want to be carrying one or we don't want to be carrying one. Some of us are carrying a cautionary tale. Some of us are carrying a message of recovery. And I had a little girl and her name is Hannah. She lives in Brooklyn, New York now. She doesn't like me anymore. She doesn't speak to me, which I wish was different. But when she was a little, little girl, she loved me and I loved her very, very much. And she was running around on a Sunday morning in her diaper. We were living in Eugene, Oregon at that time. And I was in full-blown relapse. I was eating my head off. 
and she's running around on a Sunday morning and her mother came in with more groceries than would fit in the house. And she's bagging them up and putting them away. And my little daughter, who at that time was 19 months old, she picked up her little hand and opened up the refrigerator. I'm sitting there talking to my wife and talking to my daughter and she said, turns around her head. She says, shit, Esther, there's nothing in here. I wonder where she got that from. Daddy would open up the refrigerator and say, shit, Esther, there's nothing in here. And if looks could kill, I would have been vaporized on the spot. And we are carrying a message. And there are people that are going to put themselves together and come to a face-to-face, or they're going to zoom into a meeting, or they're going to call into a meeting. And they have been ransacked by this disease. They, are, they have been ransacked by this disease because we in Overeaters Anonymous are the last house on the block. They've tried every other known method of getting respite from this disease, and they have not found it. Nobody comes in here when they're doing well. Nobody comes in here on a roll, and they put themselves together, and they come in here, and they hear something from you. And what they hear from you gives them something that they could not get in the office of a professional. They could not get in a paying way. You can give them hope and you can light them up. You can give them something that no one else could give them. And that is identification one to the other. You can identify with them and they can identify with you. And Dr. Bob, the guy looking over my shoulder with the glasses, Dr. Bob bequeathed us an inheritance in 1950 in the Cleveland Convention, months before he succumbed to cancer. He told us so eloquently that what this boils down to is love and service. He says, let's not louse this up with complexities that are only of importance to the psychologist, the clinician. Let's keep it simple. And at the very last, it's about love and service. And we all know what love is and we all know what service is. And he said, no man looks better in God's eyes than when he is bent over helping his fellow man to stand on the run of the ladder that he now occupies. You all know what love is and you all know what service is. You can sponsor. The doctor's opinion through chapter three is step one. Chapter four, step two. Chapter five, steps three and four. Chapter six, steps five through 11. Chapter seven is step 12. And I'm reminded of my very dear friend, and you never know how a good deed is going to go. You hear this over and over again, that only, only an idiot can, you, and any idiot can count the seeds in an apple, but only God can count the apples in a seed, that the possibilities are endless. And I'm reminded of my late friend, Scott. And Scott was a drug addict and he was an alcoholic and the girls used to go crazy for him. He was about 6'2", 6'3", dark hair, real Jewish guy, but he looked, 
He looked like he was Italian. People always thought he was Italian, but he was a Jewish kid. Dark skin, dark hair. Oh, the girls used to go bananas for him. And one day he got a part in an on-Broadway play in New York and he lit out for New York City. And while he was there, he was in that play. He fell in love with someone else in the theater and they married and moved out to Los Angeles, California. And he was very active in AA. The food eventually killed him, unfortunately, but the liquor and the drugs drove him into AA. And he went out there and it was a Saturday night night, a very rainy Saturday night. And they get a call from a guy in a motel in East Los Angeles. And if you don't know, Susan could tell us, East LA is not exactly the high-end district. And he went with another guy. They always go in twos. He went out to East Los Angeles to this motel and he called on this guy. And the guy is sitting on the bed drinking whiskey and they sat in there and talked to him for about an hour and they realized he had fallen asleep. He was just bleary eyed like I get sometimes and they let him sleep and they left. Five years later, five years later, he is speaking at an Alcathon at the Sheraton in San Diego on Mission Bay. A man comes up to him after his lead, puts a bear hug on him and says, you're Scott. And he says, yes. And he's, the guy says, you saved my life. And Scott says, I don't believe I know you. And the guy says, do you remember years ago, you came to a motel in East LA and you talked to somebody in that motel do you remember that? And he says, yeah, but that wasn't you. He says, oh no, I was hiding under the bed. I heard every word you said and I haven't had a drink since. Any idiot can count the seeds in an apple, but only God can count the apples in a seed. When you bring this message forward to the world, you're a person. To the person that you're bringing it to, you can be the world and you can light them up and you can give them hope. And there is an unbroken chain there is an obligation that we all have to sponsor and to serve and that men and women gave their lives so you could be here today on this meeting because many of these people died along the way so that they could learn what to do and what not to do. And an unbroken chain was struck on June the 10th, 1935, when this guy met this guy in Akron, Ohio. And that chain came to Bill Dotson and Jimmy Burwell and Clarence Snyder and Hank Parkhurst and Fitz Mayo and Marty Mann. And it came to a guy who in 1955 in Oxnard, California, and his name was Jim Willis. And, excuse me, Jim Willis, my facocta allergies. <sighs> ah, God. Jim Willis started a group that he knew were these people that were not alcoholics. I'm not crying. 
that were not alcoholics. They needed a place to go where they could identify without being alcoholics. And he started a group called Gamblers Anonymous. And in 1959, he and four other gamblers were on a program called the Paul Coates television show that aired in Los Angeles, California and four other destinations in California. And in November of 1959, there was a housewife watching the show late at night. She had two babies that she had put to bed and her name was Roseanne. And she knew a man who was friends with her husband, Marvin. And Marvin's friend was a gambler. And she thought that this Gamblers Anonymous program could help him. So Marvin and Roseanne in late November, 1959, they took this man to a meeting of Gamblers Anonymous in Los Angeles, California. And Jim Willis, the founder of GA, just happened to be at this meeting. Roseanne identified with the gamblers lying and their degradation and their stealing and their secret lives. And she identified with these people right down the line. And she went up to Jim Willis at the end of the meeting and she said to him, Jim, do you think a program like yours could help someone like me with food? And he heard the pain in her voice and he said, you know, Roseanne, I don't see why not. And on January the 19th, 1960, in Los Angeles, California, the very first meeting of Overeaters Anonymous, named by Marvin Scholar, Roseanne's husband, Marvin named us Overeaters Anonymous, and the name stuck. And there grew to be 16 groups of Overeaters Anonymous. Meanwhile, in Luling, Texas, there was a guy, I can see him now, A.G. Ainsworth, and he was a compulsive overeater, and he was coming back from a church retreat, a silent retreat, which he loved. And A.G. Ainsworth and Robert stopped off at a German bakery in Luling, Texas to get some stuff to eat. And Robert was an AA member who had been a member of AG's church. And he said to Robert, as they got out of the car at the bakery, Robert, and he said it in a way that was almost joking, because if Robert made fun of him, he wanted to be able to say, I was just kidding. Robert, do you think a program, he didn't say program, he said program. He always said program. This is a good program. He had a very thick Texas accent. He was a tall Texan. And no matter, he lived in a very hot part of the country. I live in probably the hottest part of the country, but he always wore long sleeves. But anyway, that's for another time. He says, Robert, do you think a program like yours in AA could help someone like me with food? And Robert heard the pain in his voice and turned to AG that Sunday and said, you know, A.G., I don't see why not. And Norma B. and A.G. Ainsworth in Luling, Texas, started a group called Gluttons Anonymous, G.A., Gluttons Anonymous. And if you look in any good dictionary, that really describes what I am. On a Sunday, after getting information from the A.A. office in New York City, 
they wanted to know was anybody else using this this method of recovery and they gave him Roseanne's number. I was in Roseanne's home and saw the phone that he called on. It was quite exciting. He, they called Roseanne. Representatives from all five of the Gluttons Anonymous meetings got together and called her. And it was like Stanley finding Livingston. In 1962, AG flew his private plane to Los Angeles, California. And they had the very first business conference and there were five groups of Gluttons Anonymous represented and 16 groups of Overeaters Anonymous represented. And in a vote of 16 to five, we became Overeaters Anonymous. A guy by the name of Sandy, not Sandy Beach, the famous circuit speaker in AA, but another guy by the name of Sandy <coughs> incorporated us filed with the Canadian and American governments, our tax-free status as a charitable organization, and we were on our way. And AG became the very first chairman of the board of trustees, as long, or, or, along with being the first man ever in OA, because up to that point, men were not allowed to attend meetings of Overeaters Anonymous, and the rest is history. And one day that message reached you, you owe. Don't be afraid to sponsor, be afraid not to. Don't focus on results. And then there's a third, there's a third part to this step. And it says, and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. So we have this instruction, not just to incorporate this in our eating, not just to incorporate this in certain segments, but in all areas. And this is where pockets of agnosticism can hold us back. One day we'll do another one. If Melissa will have me back, we'll do one on step two, where we'll talk about those pockets of agnosticism that can kill us. But we are, it's a three-step program. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. Thank Back you. you. <laughs> Thank you both so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, we will now be opening up for a Q&A. Just a quick um, announcement that this is the Trudge Talk series. So we meet once a month. Um, so there's more events to follow. I'll post the link for that and everything else I'm about to say in the chat. So please join us next month. We have a bunch of really great topics to follow. Um, the seventh tradition information will be also posted in the chat. This is coming to you from Mid-Hudson Intergroup out of New York. Thank you so much to Mid-Hudson Intergroup. And um, yeah, Q&A time. If you're interested in asking a question, please raise your virtual hand and Susan will call on you in order. You can direct your question to one speaker specifically or to both. If you don't want to be recorded or would like to ask your question anonymously, please private message Susan in the chat. And I do want to say because there's um, 129 people here in just a couple minutes for this, please be brief and to your question. All right, Susan, over to you. Thank you, everyone.
First of all, thank you so much, Harlan and Melissa. You had a total of 150 people here. We had Ireland and the UK represented. So please stay on and Harlan and Melissa will try and get to all of your questions. Please be brief with just a quick thank you and get to the questions so we can help as many people. First person up, Trina, would you like to unmute yourself, please? Oh, hi. <laughs> hi, my question was just that I have like, um. I don't want to be, you know, terminally different, but I have a kind of like an off personality and I don't feel like people are attracted to my personality. So is giving service in other ways enough if I, if I'm not sponsoring, like, you know, uh, there's a lot of other service you can do in OA. So that's my question in a nutshell. Thanks. And thanks Harlan. And I'm sorry, I don't remember the Melissa, I think. Melissa. Melissa. Thank Melissa. you so much. Yeah. I'm going to answer that really quick. Um, if you've had a spiritual awakening no you have to sponsor that that really is i don't think it's um if you're worried about your personality not attracting other people or not um that sounds like you're in the business of god because um you never know there's there's a whole world full of people and someone that might want to work with harlan it might not be someone that gels with me or, you know, really it's about the instruction in the book, not so much about the personality of you. The best thing that you can do to be attractive to other people is to live in agreement with the principles, right? Having had a spiritual awakening, you know, that you demonstrate these principles in all your affairs, that draws people in, in my opinion. Thanks. Couldn't agree more. Whatever your personality is, whatever your personality isn't, Rule 62, Trina, don't take yourself so seriously. You're going to be the perfect sponsor for some, not the perfect sponsor for others. The dogs bark, but the wagon train continues. Just put yourself out there after the second meeting of uh, vision and people will call you and some of them will recover and some of them won't. Get out of the results business. Thank you. Who's next? Don't be shy friendly group here. If you don't know how to raise your hand, just unmute. No question. Oh, Giselle, go ahead. Hi. Thank you so much, Melissa and Harlan. Um, Melissa, you talked about, uh, I, I, uh, first of all, I'm sorry, I just joined in the last 40 minutes, so I didn't hear everything. But what I heard is, uh, Melissa, you talked about um, your morning practice, and Harlan, if if you can if you can add, also I would love to hear. Um, so when you say that you're meditating, like how does it look? Like you're you're sitting down and you're breathing for like I don't know twenty minutes, an hour, or you're just sitting down and asking God to direct your thinking and just witnessing the flow of, of, of thoughts or like, how does like I, use specifically a lot of, it looks I use a lot of online meditation. This is my prayer book. It's right here. Notice it's very worn out. Notice that the binding is broken here and it's, it's also schmettered here. But the bottom line is, is that I use a lot of online meditations and I use prayers out of the big book. I use prayers out of there. Those are more personal, uh, you know, for me. Um, but the bottom line is you have to follow what works for you. There's so many online meditations now. It's not even funny. Some of them will call to you and some of them won't. Just try some. 
or just sit there and be quiet and pray and just let God in, just breathe in and breathe out. There's no wrong way to do it. It's just, are you doing it? That's, there's no right or wrong. Do what works for you. Melissa, do you have anything to add to that? Or? Yeah, I mean, I too, I have some, um, some meditation apps that I've tried. Um, you know, if you put yourself out, first of all, we're told in, in part of step two to have a relationship with God, we have to seek. We've got, it's having sought, seeking. So I'm consistently looking for it. So if a prayer doesn't, if a prayer or meditation practice doesn't move you, try another one. It's called a practice, right? Which means you're going to do it over and over and over again. It should be, for me, it's got to be something that I feel um, is, is somewhat enjoyable. I want a relationship, anybody I know that I have a good relationship with, the time that I spend with them can't feel like an obligation, has to feel, right? You've had friends like that. We're told it's our, it's our, it's, it's a conscious companion. I want to, I want a relationship with, with God. So just try different ones, try different, speak to people, ask them what they try. I like Insight Timer. There's many of them that you can try. Thanks. Thank you for the question, Giselle. Who's next? Don't be shy. Now is the time. We have a captive audience. Wendy, go ahead, please. Hi, I'm Wendy, a compulsive eater from New York. Um, my question for either or both of you is um, when something happens in your life and you lose your connection, what is it that you do to get it back? Step 10. <laughs> it's step 10. That's really what that, that's what that's about when I, don't feel like you mean a connection to a higher power. Yeah, it's usually because my I got in the way. Mm. Me, I got there. So I do a 10 step. Um where you know there's it's the it's this um remember that ego thing that we kind of talked about that feel I want to feel it right away. I want to feel everything so in, intensely right away. Um you're not going to. You're not going to. It's you're gonna have to seek, right? Um yeah, I mean, I don't feel God inspired every second of the day. You know, sometimes it's, sometimes I'm just doing the dishes, right? I don't necessarily feel God in the sink with me. I'm just doing the dishes. Um, you know, I, I think that's, I, I think it's just the, the consideration to keep seeking, to keep looking, keep practicing. When I can't find God right away, I look for one of his children and help one of his kids, help one of his kids. Put your hand out to be of service to another human being with no expectation of a result. We are not in the results business. And in finding another person, I often find God. Step 10, step 11, step 12, these are critical. But if I do not feel that presence of God, I look for one of his children and that's where it starts. Thank you. Next up, Bob E. in New Jersey. Uh, 
good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, Harlan, Melissa. It was a wonderful, wonderful journey with you today. Um, I guess my problem is I, I felt the bedevilments and then 31 pages later, the promises, but they don't always come true. There are some days that are diamonds and some days that are stones and some days that are just cubic zirconia. So what do you do when you feel you've lost your way? You're not the person you want to be, the person your family deserves you to be. How do you get back on the, tr on the train to feeling good and feeling the promises again? Thank you. And anyone can answer it. Thank you. Thanks. I, you know what? Um, I think it's just like what Harlan had said, which really is nothing sets me right on my feet. Like, like working with another person, like, you know, if, if, if I, um, fall off course with my family, I make amends, right. I, I say, I'm sorry, or I clean up, right. Not just say, I'm sorry. I clean up where I got off course. Um, and I work with other compulsive overeaters. There are millions of them. Like there are seriously, I get a lot of calls from people crying, you know, who, who can't stop eating, who are like, they tell you all the horrible things that they're experiencing with the food. Nothing gets me right back, you know, to living in, in, in the promises as when I'm helping other people, it really does. So. Thanks. Um, there's, there's no 31 page gap in this book where there are no promises. There's promises from one end of this book to the other. The promises, the step nine promises are just some of the promises. There's promises from every chapter, every all over this book. When I find that I'm not feeling God's presence, look for one of his children, look for one of his children and help them with no expectation of a return. And in finding his children, I often find him. If I can't find one of his children, uh, it's because it's late at night or whatever, do some writing, do some praying, do some, do some meditation. You'll find him. When you seek him, when you walk to God, he'll run to you. He'll run to you. Thank you so much, both of you. I, I do, I, I write a letter to God. And then I listen to what God has to say to me. And he always, says, he always says it very gently. My darling daughter, Barbara, uh, he's very kind, but he does point out to me what I need to do. But sometimes I do it and sometimes I don't. And I think Melissa hit the nail right on the head. The hardest thing for me is with my family. I can be kind to you because you're going to zoom off right away, but my family's with me 24 seven. Thank you, Bob. Thanks, Barbara. Okay, next we have one question in the chat and then Kelly will go to you and then decide if we're going to go over. Okay, the question is, if you find you do not recoil at the thought of food after being recovered for a time and you know you don't want to return to the food, what steps should you return to to strengthen your program? 10, 11, and 12. 
there's something in there that's, that's, that's bothering you, that's harboring you. And this is where the problem is, 10, 11, and 12. And if it continues where you're not recoiling as if from a hot flame, then you need to review your food. You, you may be consuming an allergen. And sometimes in this program, it's not like AA, it's not like NA. Things change. I walked out of my nutritionist's office three, four years ago in tears. She took away grapes and dates and bananas and, and figs. And she took away cherries and she took away, uh, uh, what else? I forgot what else. I can't think anymore. I'm too famished. But the bottom line is, is that really, I mean, I used to consume 30, 40 candy bars a day. Now I can't eat a piece of watermelon. No, I can't because things change. That's why OA is the toughest program. The accountability is not only the toughest, but the rules change. Unlike in AA or NA, NA and AA are tough pro programs. No question. Al-Anon, whatever it is, GA. But in here, it changes over time. So you got to review what you're doing sometimes. Go ahead, Melissa. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that, that's good. Yeah, sometimes it's the food. And, um, you know, it says in the chapter, working with others, that um, if we're spiritually fit, we can do all sorts of things. So I would say it speaks to your spiritual fitness. Because remember, it's only an act of, a pro only an act of providence, only a miracle can relieve me. So there's some area that I'm falling out of, of protection of this miracle. And yeah, I have to look, I have to look at my, you know, sometimes it's, I would find, you know, if I'm not recoiling as if from a hot flame, if I'm feeling the pull of the food, it's because either I'm being dishonest, right? There's an area of, that I'm not willing to be honest about. And there's some action that I'm not taking. There's something, you know, that I'm not doing that suddenly the food starts calling my name. And I've had moments where that happened. I, I had a situation where I couldn't believe it. It was like, you know, and I know exactly what I was falling off mark from. I had, I had this real sudden desire for a particular food. It came out of nowhere. I haven't eaten it in years. And all of a sudden it was like, vision, you know, mentally, it was like I was unwrapping it in my brain, thinking about it. I'm like, where did this come from? But I knew what was going on. I was upset about something. There were actions I wasn't taking. I wasn't doing a 10 step on it because I thought it was beneath me to even be talking about it. Nothing's beneath me to talk about it. Um, and, and I actually, there was an area there that I had an amend to make. You know, those, those impediments, those are the things, right? It's a secret, something I don't wanna do. Um, when I did those things, it was removed again. I was back in that protection. Oh, thanks. Thank you, Harlan and Melissa, because I don't want to take advantage of your time. Are you okay with two more questions before we close? Okay, yeah. Two more. Thank two. you. Kelly, go ahead, and then I have one anonymous question, then we'll close. Go, Kel. Amazing. Hi, Kelly, compulsive overeater. Uh, thank you guys so much. Um, I only got to hear the second half, but it's so impactful and so inspiring as always. Um, I was just curious, early in your recovery, um, you know, after, you know, I worked through the 12 steps. Um, but still, you know, sometimes have that faulty connection with God. So how did you guys connect um, with God earlier in recovery before you have all these strong, you know, connections with it, with the spirit? Okay. Working you. with others. 
working with others. That was really it. And I had to keep laying aside my ego. You know, I was glad that Harlan had talked about that before. It's not contingent upon who gets through the steps with me. That has nothing to do with my spiritual connection. My spiritual connection is to do the work and leave the results up to God. And I would say, you know, I spoke with someone earlier today about that very point. You don't know where you're meeting anybody on their recovery journey. You don't know what they're learning from you. You don't know what they're gonna take away from you. You know, I know I speak that I'm a teacher. I don't know if I'm meeting someone in kindergarten or I'm meeting them in their master's program, right? I have a set of directions. My job is to, is to transmit what I know, what I know and what somebody is capable of learning and, and getting that's on them. But I would say that that strong spiritual connection, you learn the steps, not just by going through it once with you, but by doing it every time I take somebody through, I learn more and more and more and I deepen my connection. So I would say, keep working with other people. Um, you're asking about early recovery, early, early, early on. I lean into the fellowship, but I need to lean into the tools as well. I'm not a big tool person, but early on, I was going to 10 and 15 meetings a week. And I was, you know, in those days, we didn't have podcasts. There was no such thing as a podcast. There was tapes, reel-to-reel and cassette tapes that we had. And that was what we had. And I would listen to them. And I did the best I could to make a ton of phone calls, but get to meetings, do what you need to do. Recovery today is easier than it's ever been. You've got the OA birthday, which is, which is enormous, enormous juggernaut of recovery. And I recommend that you get to the OA birthday in January. We're not, I don't know if, we're, but whether it's on Zoom, whether it's hybrid, with Get to the OA birthday because you're going to hear the only convention besides vision where they're thinking about is the person up there in recovery? There are tapes. Go on Los Angeles, Overeaters Anonymous, under events. You're going to see the OA birthday. You're going to see all kinds of recordings that you can tap into. If you're new in recovery, tap into these recordings. They are gold. There is a, a, uh, one of the things that's on there that really helps people early in recovery is it's a sober eating workshop. And the sober eating workshop is a wonderful way to get you started on a food plan. And it doesn't matter who, but the, the people that do it really concentrate on disseminating the information in the most palatable way possible, the sober eating workshop. There's, there's recovery tapes from the birthday on all manner of specific recovery. There's workshops on the steps. There's a big book workshop. There's workshops on this kind of recovery, that kind of recovery. It's fantastic. Get your butt there. When we're back in Los Angeles, I wanna see all of you there. When we go to Newark, New Jersey for the vision convention, I want to see you guys there. There's recordings, excuse me, all over the place. I don't care if it's two in the morning or two in the afternoon. You can hear unbelievable speakers and they're free and they're fun and they're free. Go on the, make use of what what is there. So that will help you early in recovery. Believe me when I tell you, it makes all the difference in the world. 
Thank you, Harlan, for that fabulous plug for the birthday party. And I will post the OALAOG link. And our last question, which I already know how Melissa will answer. Okay, how to approach the feeling of scarcity of time. I'm sure my disease is playing with me, but sometimes I believe it. Step 12, action. That you don't have enough time. <laughs> yeah, so I'll just tell you, you know, um, there's something miraculous that happens when, when we do this work, when we allow God to tell us how to use our time. I have more time for, than I ever imagined. And um, this takes priority. You know, if I thought that I was going to fit this into my well-structured, well-run, you know, perfect life, that somehow I was gonna like squeeze this into the little, little spots that were available to it, have it all wrong, right? I have a living problem. I had a living problem that caused me to kill myself with food. And so if you're thinking you're gonna fit this program into your life, you got it all wrong. What, what I really required was a new life with a new structure and a new life. And I say, do the work, you'll be amazed at the time that you suddenly have available. My disease didn't care how much time it stole from me. It stole every spare moment and then some, right? It, was, it wasn't convenient. It didn't, it didn't care that I had kids, didn't care that I had to go to work, didn't care that I had bills, nothing. It took priority, it took precedent. And what I found was that when I seek God's will and I put this program first, all of the other things that I need to do, the places and people that I need to show up for, I'm able to do it. I'm able to do it. Um, I don't watch a lot of TV. I rarely watch TV. That's the truth, you know, and, and there's nothing against TV watching, but I have more important things to do. I've watched enough of life. I've sat as a spectator and watched enough people living and I'm done watching people living. I, I live today. Um, there is enough time for this program. A hundred percent. There is enough time for this program. Otherwise I'm dead. Otherwise I'm dead. Right. That's my only choice. So thanks. I'm just going to echo what Melissa just said. I found the time to eat. Here's a conversation I've never had with myself. Man, was I busy yesterday. I never made it to get Oreo cookies. I never made it over to McDonald's to kill myself uh, uh, eating French fries. But now all of a sudden, I'm a very busy man. I can't be bothered with all this other stuff. Hogwash. This has to be job one, priority one. This has to be at the top of every priority I have. If I needed, God forbid, chemotherapy or or dial my mother was on dialysis the last while of her life. It didn't matter where there was a snowstorm in Chicago. It didn't matter that there was an ice storm in Chicago. I had to get her butt over to Illinois Masonic Hospital and get on that damn machine. Then I could leave for two and a half hours. I could leave and then come back. I didn't have to sit there with her and I didn't most of it. I don't think I ever did. But I didn't sit there with her for two and a half hours. But I don't care what the conditions were. We made it over to that hospital. If God forbid I needed that kind of thing, I'd make the time. How do I get the time? 
I'm not busy resenting people. I'm not busy getting the food. I'm not busy eating the food. I'm not busy writing bad checks to buy the food. I'm not doing the crazy things I used to do. And alas and alack, I have time. The disease is the most exhausting, time-consuming way of life there is. It's exhausting. It's debilitating. The more I do in program, the more exhilarated I am. I was tired. I did special edition this morning. Woohoo, poor me. And I knew that I was going to be on here. And you know, for the first couple of minutes when, when Melissa was sharing her story, I was starting to fade out a little bit. I feel great. Not because she's boring and she knows I love her, but because I was tired. The more I listened and the more I spoke and the more we got into it, I feel great right now. Even though the Cubs are losing one to nothing in the ninth, I feel fantastic. Find the time, make the time. This is life or death. Thank you. There is no better high than sharing this with others. Thank you, Kira, for letting me step in and help you today. Thank you for letting me be of service. And I will now pass this back over to Kira to close this out. Thank you all so, so much. Thank you, Susan, Melissa, Harlan, and everyone for being here. Um, we'll meet again for the next Trudge Talk on Sunday, May 16th. Stay tuned for the flyer. You can visit midhudsonoa.org for all that information. And I'm just going to end the recording.